Welcome back, all you creeps, to another episode of Murder on the 420 Express, except this one is different. This one is a secret society episode. Oh yeah, you heard that right. This is an exclusive bonus episode of Murder on the 420 Express, also known as the Secret Society of the Crypt Creepers. Try saying that five times fast. (laughs) These are exclusive episodes for our subscriber-only content. In this episode, we dive into the mysterious world of Dr. George Hodel, who was one of the most infamous surgeons that was a top suspect in the Elizabeth Short murder, also known as the Black Dahlia. There is no shortage in the interest in this unsolved crime, In fact, this murder is frequently cited as one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history, as well as one of the oldest unsolved cases in Los Angeles County. Hell, you can take a tour that will show you Elizabeth's last known sightings, as well as where her body was later found. I shit you not. It is a three-hour tour, and it's $85 per person, just in case anyone is wondering. What makes this case so intriguing is the fact that her killer was never brought to justice. There are a multitude of theories and speculations around it. In fact, LAPD and the FBI just didn't have enough evidence or leads to who could have done it. There were at least over 150 suspects in this crime that eventually chipped away until it dwindled down to 24. Now, If you haven't listened to our episode on the Black Dahlia, then I suggest you hit that pause button and sneak over to it to get a listen. Link in the episode is in the description box below. Of those 24 suspects was none other than Dr. George Hodel. Not many people had very kind words to say about him. In fact, the dude was kind of a fucking weirdo. And not the fun weirdos that you invite over to the house party you're throwing and end up giving you, like, the best weed and advice you've ever received. This is no kumbaya moment. Georgie boy over here was a sick, sadistic fuck who had a laundry list of terrible deeds under his designer belt. Here is the reason I think he most certainly had something to do with, if not the ringleader then definitely an accomplice to Elizabeth Short's murder. There is a very incriminating evidence that was collected from investigating him. Yes, his house was even bugged, but even his own family, down to his surviving kin, without a doubt believe he killed Elizabeth Short and possibly others. Listen, I'm going to let the evidence speak for itself, but just remember, there's no such thing 
as coincidences. So let's start from the beginning of this train wreck, shall we? George was born in 1907 in downtown Los Angeles. He was the only child of a very well-off family. He was some of what they would call a musical protege. He was playing concerts at the age of nine. He had a very loving and supportive mother, possibly a little too loving and supportive. I mean, this was the 1900s. I could only imagine what kind of mother she was if this was a rich white family. Which leads me to my next exhibit. Georgie Boy did not care or even like his mother. He wanted to lead an entirely different life than what his mother wanted for him. Typical generational trauma. But Mama Hodel didn't want her son doing anything other than playing the piano. As soon as she died, he quit playing the piano altogether. If he wasn't going to play the piano, then he was then what was he going to do? Well, the universe not only gifted George with the sound of music, but also gave him the gift of intellect. He was a legit genius. He received the highest scores in California public school history, of course, at the time. In high school, he was given an IQ test, and he scored 186. Genius level is anything above 140. He literally scored one point above Einstein. That is how smart this motherfucker was. The dude graduated high school at the age of 15 years old. He shortly went to college after, and what did he go to college for? Uh, Well, he went to Caltech. So you can imagine what kind of um, subjects he was studying at Caltech. But college wouldn't be college if there wasn't some form of a scandal. And... (laughs) George would begin to have an affair with his professor's wife. Oh, yeah, you heard that right. His professor's wife. The affair didn't last long as she became pregnant shortly after. This results in her marriage falling apart. She ends up going back east, and she has the baby there. George, on the other hand, was like, Baby, I want to be with you. I want to help raise this child. But Mrs. Professor's wife wasn't having it, nor did she believe him. Honestly, good on you, boo-boo, for not allowing this man to manipulate you any further. I mean, George was literally a child still. He wasn't even 18 years old yet. This had to be one of the biggest rejections he's faced in his entire life. He had to be extremely humiliated. He followed her back east and he professed his love for her. And she was still like, I dump your ass. So he travels back to Southern California only to be expelled from Caltech. Not really sure what to do with his life. He starts to follow a path once forgotten. He starts to pursue art again. His first love. Reunited and it feels so good. Yeah, he would begin to, <laughs> he began to publish his own newspaper, which was called Fantasia. This newspaper 
or Gazette magazine, whatever you want to call it, focused on the up-and-coming surrealism art movement. He was 17 years old when the first issue of this newspaper came out. Soon after, he would enroll in UC Berkeley, where he studied pre-med for four years. After he graduated, he continued his education in med school, where he studied surgery. According to his transcripts, which was found by his son, Steve Hodel, he had 750 hours. That's 31 days. That's like a whole entire fucking month worth of surgery just like under his belt. So after he gets his MD, he moves out to Arizona where he finds a job being the sole surgeon of a logging camp. It wasn't long after his brief dive into the Arizona wilderness that he comes back to L.A. where he lands a big-time gig. And I'm talking big, okay? He lands a gig at the L.A. County Health Office. This is where he was a part of the venereal disease department. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Venereal disease department? I didn't even realize that that was a thing. Keep in mind, this was like the 1930s, 1940s, right? And so he must have been doing something right because he was climbing that ladder like you wouldn't believe. He eventually becomes the head of the department. (laughs) for the venereal disease I cannot believe I'm saying that in like one sentence it just doesn't it just doesn't feel right to say like it just feels really weird (laughs) the venereal disease department of the LA County Health Office he became head fucking honcho bro and I never in a million years thought that there would be a venereal disease department but there would be a head person and George (laughs) Dr. George Hodel was that person (laughs) it's not something that I think about nor is it ever something that has been brought up in conversation before (laughs) but I guess it was a huge it was a huge health epidemic back in the 1930s and 40s yeah venereal disease was a really big health epidemic back in the day So, like, during World War II, the 1940s, right, there was a huge focus on the soldiers and their health. In World War I, it was the number one health issue, aside from being blown up, that led to days lost from actually fighting. Our soldiers were instead fighting VDs, like gonorrhea and syphilis. So... In the research and the treatment of these diseases was of high importance. And (laughs) I'm going to hit you with a fun fact. Are you ready for it? So this fun fact, (laughs) I I never thought I would be saying ever or ever would really know because it's just a random fact. It is estimated that 10% of the population would have syphilis and 20 to 40% for gonorrhea at some point in their in their life or in the you know public's life and that was that was a real life statistic back in the 1940s 
at some point, 10% of the population would have syphilis and 20 to 40% would have gonorrhea. That was like a real life thing for people. It became a really big epidemic. But there's a lot of taboo when it comes to talking about these types of diseases, especially during this time, because it was associated with sex workers, the working class and the poor class and racial minorities. It was a tall tale sign that someone was being unmotherfucking faithful, especially when it came to politicians and people who were of, you know, upper, upper class, like prestigious, prestigious ass people. <laughs> um, but during the 1920s and 30s, Going back to Mr. Do- or sorry, Dr. George Hodel, he married twice, having children with both women, one of whom would become an instrumental um, key in future proceedings against him. However, this is far from it to say that Hodel had ever settled down. In fact, it was it was quite the opposite. He was Mr. Steal Your Girl. Friends with film director John um, Hudson. From his teenage years, Hodel made new friends during this time period in his life. Many were those in the Hollywood life and art culture. One of those friends being Man Ray, the famous photographer, a surrealism photographer. We'll get to him more later on, so make sure you keep Man Ray stuck in your head. Hodel was eagerly welcomed into all of these circles, and in the 1940s, he married Houston's ex-wife, Dorothy Harvey. They had three children together. In 1945, Dr. George Hodel purchased the iconic Swoden house, which was already confusing to most average mortals. There was nothing average about Hodel. Like the man had it all. He was <laughs> he was like the way that they described it when I was doing research on George Hodel was that like he was he was a a very important person. Like because venereal diseases were like on the up and up and he was like the head honcho of the venereal disease department <laughs> for <laughs> the Los Angeles County. Like, he was a very important person, and he had really high-class, high um, what is that word I'm looking for? High-profile. He had very high-profile clients and, and patients. So, like, he was, like, he was an extremely important person. Lo and fucking behold, man, who would have fucking known? Not only did Harvey live at Hodel's striking mansion in the Los Feliz section of Los Angeles, but it but at varying times, so did his ex-wife, Dorothy Anthony, and their daughter Tamar. At other times, his first wife, Amelia Amelia, lived at the property as well. Between his three wives, his um Hodel regularly engaged in affairs across Los Angeles. 
few women lasting longer than a short period of time before being casted aside, one of them being his secretary and quite possibly the Black Dahlia herself. He also, through drug-infused hedonistic parties and orgies in his golden bedroom, this motherfucker (laughs) lived his life on the wild side. Like, this was the 1940s. I need everyone to be aware of this. This was the 1940s. And he's over here having all of his wives, all of his children just living with him, throwing these drug-induced sex raves and orgies in his house. Like, this was some shit, okay? Like, this this was not something that I could see my great-grandparents, like, getting down to do you know what I mean like this is it's just weird to to hear that this was the type of life he was living in the time period that he was living it in so it's 1945 okay (laughs) because George was the head of this department the venereal disease department he had some very high profile patients and he kept track of every single one of them But it wasn't enough to just help the general population. No, 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 no. George found a way to make it a fucking side hustle, bro. He made it a fucking side hustle. In fact, his son, Steve Hodel, found evidence of this while digging through his father's past. George would misdiagnose some of his patients and say that they already had a VD when they clearly did not. He would prescribe the medication and charge his patients $75 to $100 for treatment, which back then was a lot of money. Like in today's inflation and all, it's like $1,500 to get this type of treatment. And guess who knew his fucking secret? His secretary, Ruth Francis Spaulding and she was planning on coming forward with information so but the question remains how did she get this information like how how did she know and why was she about to blackmail Dr. George Hodel because she was about to find out that that is the worst thing that you could have possibly done to miss to Georgie boy over here okay let's dive into it So one of George's patients got a second opinion over a gonorrhea diagnosis. Turns out she never fucking had it. So she wrote a letter to Hodel, and along with this letter, she included her new test results. She ended up mailing this letter to his secretary, Ruth. This is where I'm going to send an angry letter to your manager, like, originated from. (laughs) Like... This patient was so upset, and as she should be. She wanted her money back because it wasn't enough that she getting diagnosed with a venereal disease like gonorrhea because it legitimately ruined her life. This was the 1940s. It, these things like this, they ruined people's lives, okay? So now Ruthie and Georgie, they go way back. She worked for him for a number of years, and even had romantic relationships with him. <clears throat> Nowadays, we call this a situationship, 
We also call it don't shit where you eat, but I digress. Ruth felt some type of way because when Georgie boy ended things with her, she got hella salty, okay? She got hella salty. And then she did what no one should ever fucking do. She straight told him that she had information that could possibly incriminate him. She told it to his face. She had proof of his misdiagnoses and under-the-table abortions. The following is only speculation, okay? The following of what we're about to dive into is pure speculation. There, this is all, you know, this, this information comes from Steve Hodel, Georgie Boy's son, right? So for now, allegedly... So she was finna expose his ass, okay? Ruth, Ruth girl, she was like, I'm gonna expose you. I'm gonna tell everybody exactly what kind of man you are. So when she brought this to his attention, I don't know why she did, he turns the tables, telling Ruth, baby, baby, I wanna get back together with you, and together we can make a lot of money. You'll be my queen, and I'll give you everything your heart desires. I'll leave my fucking wife, my family, just for you. And you know what the sad part was? She fucking believed him. He goes down to her apartment. From there, we can only speculate what happened. George ends up calling his wife, telling him or telling her to meet him there. She asks why. What's wrong with Ruth? George then claims she overdosed. Suspicious. (laughs) This shit is suspicious. This bitch just straight up overdosed. I don't know what the hell happened. She just, she took a lot of pills and she gone. Bitch is gone. When Dorothy arrives at the apartment, George hands her the manuscripts and all of the evidence that Ruth was going to use to expose George and asks her to burn them. Burn it. What? Did I say stand there and look stupid? No, I said burn it. Shortly after, or shortly thereafter, George calls a cab, takes her to the nearest hospital, and she dies 20 minutes after being admitted. She was 27 years old. Rest in peace, Ruth. You joined the 27 Club. And right here, I'm going to put in a trigger warning for essay and incest. So from 1945 to 19, sorry, from 1945 to 1949, he is still living his life with his sex parties and his drug-induced raves he was having up in his bedroom. These parties were wild. He would invite big-name celebrities, photographers, and film directors. So wild, okay? So wild that he thought it was a great idea, okay, to have his daughter join in on um, (laughs) on these great parties, you know? So Tamar would later recall, um, documented in the podcast Root of Evil, that she took part in some of these parties. 
Tamar and George's relationship is one that I would describe as very sick, and it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> he groomed his daughter. He, he literally groomed his daughter. There is a line in how open and honest you are with your children when it comes to the human anatomy, right? And teaching them about themselves. <clears throat> in all conversations with kids, no matter what stage in life, there is a teachable moment that needs to be held and respected. George crosses that line repeatedly with his daughter. So it comes to no surprise when she runs away from home to get away from the sexual horrors she was living. When her mother finds out that she's missing, she urges George to call the police to try and find her. She was found at a friend's house three days later and was arrested. During her interview with detectives, she told them everything everything she told them about the time she was pregnant with her father's baby and got an illegal abortion she told them about the time that she was coerced into having sex with her father numerous times everything when the police brought george in for questioning and asked what he was doing he said deviling into the mysteries of love in the universe and unclear like a dream i can't figure out whether someone's hypnotizing me or i'm hypnotizing someone real hippie shit george that's some real hippie shit you just said there their trial began in late 1949 the incest trial began the newspapers called it a morals trial now when law enforcement found Tamar at her friend's house, they essentially arrested her. And so she was under, um, she was essentially the court's problem, you know. <laughs> she was no longer in the hands of her parents. She was in the hands of the court's. And from the time that she was arrested, that's where she would stay. She went to, I believe she went to jail. And then, oh, let's see, I believe after the trial is when she went to juvenile hall. But let's, let's get back to the story. So with fear, but compelled under oath, 14-year-old Tamar told the truth. But George's high-priced Hollywood lawyers... Um, the mentally called the shaking Tamar a terrible liar, a troubled liar who had multiple boyfriends. Both were lies. Uh, despite two witnesses who said they had seen George forcing sex on his very young daughter, the incesting father was promptly acquitted and the victim, his daughter, was eventually sent to juvenile hall. It was because of this trial that got the police to look more into George as a potential suspect for the murder of Elizabeth Short. If you want to learn more about Tamar Hodel and the trial and the Hodel family and how they uncovered all of these all of these things, <laughs> um, I really, I really recommend listening to the podcast Root of Evil 
or Roots of Evil. It is a phenomenal podcast and it is highly informational with with everything that the family was able to uncover. Um, it's just, it's a really informational podcast and I highly suggest y'all go and listen to it. All right, so by 1950, the Black Dahlia case was still very much an open case. Police still had suspects and were laying in wait for the killer to slip up, right? Well, LAPD is going to have a long waiting game because it's going to be forever. They still haven't made an arrest. I'm just saying. But investigators discovered that no less than eight witnesses could at least place short in Hodel's company. Um, Some even claiming that they had engaged in a relationship. Um, Conversely, even more denied that the two knew each other. Considering him as a suspect, police bugged his Swoden house residence. What they would hear would seemingly confirm more of more of the rumors about his illicit activities. Hodel spoke of abortions and bribery to the LAPD officers, hinting that he actually killed both Spalding and Short. Quote, they thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they have to figure it out. Killed her? Maybe I did kill my secretary. End quote. But many people speculate that that these things that were being heard on the audio were just exaggerated, right? Like they were being taken out of context because Hodel knew that his house was bugged, that they were listening in on him. So he was attempting to antagonize the police. And many quotes are partially heard or unclear through interference. But by October, Hodel had been named before a grand jury as one of the five suspects in the Dahlia killing. By April of the following year, the LAPD was apparently ready to arrest George Hodel for the murder of Elizabeth Short. Some say he somehow got wind (laughs) of the moves against him and fled first to Hawaii and then over to the Philippines three years later. No charges were ever filed. And in the years that Hodel was in the Philippines, the LAPD is said to have privately believed the case was solved. No charges were ever filed. And the years that Hodel was in the Philippines, the LAPD is said to have privately believed that the case was solved. However, if this was true and evidence was strong enough for an arrest, there had been no reason that Hodel couldn't have been extradited back to California. Equally, Hodel had been planning on leaving for some time, and he clearly states his intentions to go to Asia. Uh, On the transcripts that were from his bugged house, so, like, they knew he was going to (laughs) leave. The police were well aware of his intent and made no moves to stop him. Hodel, feeling his reputation was in tatters after the molestation trial and despite being found not guilty, um, George Hodel's link to the Black Dahlia case was almost forgotten to 
his criminal history until his son, Steve Hodel, began investigating his past after his father's death. So days after his father died, and his father died in 1999, his sister, Tamar, you remember Tamar, the one you remember Tamar, she calls up her brother, Steve, and she's like, hey, they start talking, they start, you know, getting really close, and they have multiple conversations throughout the months, throughout the weeks that are, like, hours long. Like, they're they're catching up. They're getting to know each other once again. And she brings up to him, she's like, yeah, you didn't know that dad was being investigated for the Black Dahlia murder? How did Tamar know that? I'll tell you how she... During the molestation trial, when the police were escorting her from the courthouse to the jail and back, one of the police officers that was escorting her let it slip that, yeah, we're investigating him. He seems pretty fucking suspicious. Okay? Pretty fucking suspicious. So she even knew back when she was younger that they were investigating him for this murder. And so, again, his dad dies, and he hops on a plane, and he goes to the Philippines, right? From there, his father's fourth wife, her name is June, um, he discovers these photo albums. And these photo albums, in, in one of the photos, he believes is the Black Dahlia. Though others deny that the women or the woman in the photo is actually short, including her family. Whether or not they believe it or not, George Hodel's investigation finally revealed his father's link to the crime, publishing the book Black Dahlia Avenger in 2003. Now, <clears throat> when Tamar gave him this information of like, yeah, he was being investigated, his original thought was, you know what, I'm going to prove that my dad wasn't a part of it like that's are you serious my dad no my dad no my dad was weird my dad was strange he was kooky but but really no no so he went he was trying to prove that his dad didn't commit these crimes he <laughs> he was in for a shock okay so amongst the revelations in the book, Steve Hodel's discovery of receipts showing his father's purchase of cement bags of the type found at the Dahlia crime scene. Yeah, bruh. Receipt. Legit receipts. He found the receipts. <clears throat> and that both Hodel's wife and children were away from the house at the time of the killing. So he runs. He leaves the country. <laughs> right? Hodel leaves the fucking country. He had a molestation trial. Now he was being investigated for the Dahlia murder. Um, his reputation as like the top venereal disease fucking department. Like he was, he hit his peak, and now it's all coming crumbling down. He was, he was having what we call a tower moment. Okay, he was having a tower moment. <laughs> Um, and from there, once he leaves the country, he marries his fourth wife, and her name is June, like I mentioned. Um, and then he 
lived his life in the Philippines until he died in 1999. So after his death, his son, Steve O'Dell, came into the possession of his father's belongings. And what he found was damning. A lovely gift from June. Thank you, June. Steve received that photo album that was his father's. Inside were pictures that were of his family and the people who would frequent the Swoden house. A Soden house, sorry. Remember that guy I mentioned earlier, Rayman? Yeah, he was notorious for being the whiz behind the camera for most of the family photos taken of the Hodels. In this photo album is a picture of someone who seems to look like Elizabeth Short, even though her family denies it, like I said earlier. Um, but there, there are too many similarities to rule it out as a possibility. Months after George's death, Tamar, like I said, got in contact with Steve and was relaying some heavy-ass information. So, like I said, Steve decides to take matters into his own hands. He was going to investigate the case, not to prove his father's involvement, but to prove his innocence. And what he found was much more horrific than he could have imagined. Right? So, while going through his father's photo album one day and stricken with nostalgia, he remembers the friendship his mother and father had with the famous surrealism artist and photographer, Man Ray. Guess what this man has in his library? Steve is the owner of a couple books that display the works of the photo uh, fo of photographs and artwork of Man Ray. So he's flipping through the pages and he runs across a photograph called the Minotaur. And we all know what the Minotaur is, right? Half man, half bull, destined to live his life in a fucking labyrinth. Um, if you didn't know that, now you do. So this photo reminded him too much of the Black Dahlia crime scene photo. And if I'm going to post the photos, um, obviously, on our Instagram and on the TikTok. And I'm going to let you guys decide for yourself whether you see a correlation. Um, because the way that Steve is describing it, right, it's almost like an homage. Um the crime scene and what was done to Elizabeth was literally an homage and kind of like a, uh, I don't want to say gratitude because I feel like that's just not the right word. But I feel like homage is a really good word um, to Man Ray's art, right? And Steve has said in multiple um, episodes of Roots of Evil, that his dad was a very artistic person, a very creative person, and he needed an outlet for his creativity. And um, hanging around with other surrealism artists and just kind of getting the inspiration from them, that's why I said it's kind of like an homage. It's almost like a thank you. It's almost like a, hey, look at this. This is, this is for you. And it's really, it's really weird. It's really creepy. And it's, it's really heavy. But yeah, the picture of the Minotaur is of a naked woman or just like her torso and her arms are kind of like up as like a shape of the, of the horns on a bull. 
But like I said, I'm going to go ahead and post those pictures to the Instagram and to our TikTok. And I'm going to let you guys decide whether or not you see any correlation. Because there was also um, another photograph called Lovers the Lovers. And it was like a pair of lips. It's really abstract, right? It was just a pair of lips. But he, but Steve said that it reminded him of the Glasgow smile that was put on Elizabeth, like she was cut from ear to ear. And he said that it reminded, like that painting reminded him of that particular laceration on her face. I personally don't see it with that one. But let's continue. This photo reminded him too much of the Black Dahlia crime scene, right? So Steve said that this allowed him in the mind of his father. Remember, George was an artist at heart. He grew up in the arts. It was something that he loved and he wanted to live. But he was a doctor. So hanging around other artists, other socialites that are artistic, really allowed George to embrace a side of himself that he let die for years. But how was he going to start to create art? So what I have gathered from listening to these podcasts and reading numerous blogs and articles, the murder of Elizabeth Short was George's way of showing appreciation for Man Ray's artwork. Like I said, it was an homage. The two were so close that Man Ray gifted George sculptures and paintings even going as far as taking photos of his family. Here's another trigger warning. What I also found out is that Man Ray took nude photos of Tamar, George's daughter, when she was 12 years old. Like, <laughs> like that's, that's the type of energy that we're fucking dealing with here, right? The two were just they were just so close, right? So he was mimicking his artwork. And Steve found 10 distinct commonalities from Man Ray's art and the crime scene of the Black Dahlia. Nowhere in this episode am I implementing anything. Remember, it's all allegedly. But no one can deny the representation of surrealism that inspired the lacerations on Short's body. Even though Steve had all this circumstantial evidence, LAPD and the DA's office don't want to waste the taxpayers' money on a, at the time, 60-year-old case. Because Steve did bring it to <clears throat> the LAPD. He brought it to the homicide department because it is still an active case. And he was like, hey, I found this information. This is about my dad yada 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 and the DA and even the homicide detectives at the LAPD were just like we're not going to waste the taxpayers money like this is this is pointless we're not going to do that we're not going to open this case up again we're just not going to do it <clears throat> fuck is surprise surprise so the case it remains unsolved so, like, as much as this case was a high-profile case, they sure did toss it aside and let the file go missing for years. I'm not fucking shitting you, dude. The file went missing 
for years. It was a high-profile case, okay? Everyone fucking knew about it. This, um, if you listen to our the Black Dahlia episode that I did before this one, the precursor, I li- like this murder happened two years after the end of World War II. So like everyone was coming down off of off of that wartime high. And this crime just so happened to happen. And the me- it was media sensationalized. Everyone wanted to know who did it. Like, you would think that they would put a priority on such a high-profile case. But also keep in mind that they dubbed Elizabeth as someone who was a, wom- um, was a promiscuous woman. She was somebody who always had men around her so i'm i'm only i'm only speculating what they could have possibly fucking thought about her and that it's just another prostitute just laid to rest right <sighs> but again like i said the the case it's it remains unsolved to this day um but you have to remember that policing hasn't always been just in fact during this time during this time, in this era of the 1940s and 50s, um, there it was a really dark time, and corruption was afoot. You could pay off any old police officer and l- get away with murder. Like, literally, you could pay off anyone and get away with murder. I'm speculating here. Maybe that's what George Hodel did. He paid off the right type of people. He was in a high-ranking office it only makes sense for him to pay off people and be like you didn't see this you didn't didn't, didn't, didn't." you know what I mean it only makes fucking sense but like I said after 1950 or in the year 1950 he fled the country and he lived in the Philippines for the rest of his life until 1999 and that's when he died and his son, Steve Hodel, is, has, I believe, two books out now in relation to the, the Black Dahlia. And he also has a very active blog. So if you're ever interested in learning more about the Black Dahlia and um, how George Hodel is associated in her murder, you can always go ahead and check out those Um but that brings our episode to a close. Now, my personal thoughts on this are just that. There's just so much evidence that points to Hodel as being a possible killer. Um, if it wasn't just him, then it was him and a group of people, you know, like, it was definitely it was definitely something and the evidence that Steve has against his dad is like I said very circumstantial evidence but it is pretty damning evidence with all things considered um but uh I'll I'll say it for the record here I honestly think that George Hodel was a sadistic 
person and he was a very intelligent sick sadistic person and I think he got away with a lot more than we all bargained for um also I forgot to mention this but his son also connected him to the Zodiac Killer and the Cleveland Torso Killer. I don't have all of that information here in front of me, but there's a lot of evidence that goes into that as well, too. Maybe I'll make a part two. I think a part two might be nice if you guys want to hear the evidence on those two um, high-profile cases as well. But thank you for tuning into this episode this bonus episode. If you liked this episode and want more where this came from, be sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications. And thank you for joining our secret society of the Crypt Creepers. This sesh has reached its end. Don't forget to follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Murder on the 420 Official. If you have a spooky tale to share through the millennia and have some feedback, or just an episode suggestion, send us an email at murder420podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, L, leaving you with a higher train of thought.